Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. When was the last time you bought concert tickets? Chances are you did it online. And chances are also you didn't complete the purchase on the venue's website. Earlier this year, U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal introduced a bill that he hopes will rein in the role of online third-party ticket sellers. He'll join us later in the show to give us the latest on that. But first, one singer-songwriter from Connecticut is forging a music career abroad in Indonesia, and she just dropped a single titled New England Baby. Let's take a quick listen to the chorus. Joining us now from Jakarta is singer-songwriter Ashley Hamill herself. Welcome to the show, Ashley. Hello, thank you for having me. And for our listeners, you can join in on the conversation all about the music industry today in Connecticut and beyond. Give us a call, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So Ashley, we definitely want to talk more about the song you just debuted. And if you're not awake after hearing that chorus, I don't know what's going to make you wake up this morning. But first, I want to talk about how you got your start in music, Ashley. You know, when did you get the itch? Sure. Um... So I started writing music when I was in high school and I kind of did it secretly. I I got a guitar from my friends, like brother-in-law and I was secretly writing songs. And then in the junior, my junior year, I performed for like a talent night. And I remember some of the girls afterwards and I played my original song. It was like a song about my crush, you know? (laughs) As we do. I remember one of uh, this girl that I didn't really know, but she was kind of like in an adjacent social circle, you know, she came up to me the next day and was like, Ashley, you made me cry with that song. And I was like, dang, I have some power here. Like, wow, okay, let's keep going. Um, But it wasn't until I was 25 that I realized that I needed to actually pursue this in a more legitimate and serious way. And that was with the um, with the release of my first EP called "By the Window" in twenty four. Sorry, excuse me, in twenty fourteen. And this was as you were growing up in Meriden. So, how did you uh, develop your talent? And you did this in secret too. That's amazing. Um, so kind of a lot of my experience, and I talk a lot about this in my music, is kind of uh, straddling a lot of different lines and, and boundaries in our in our society. So I grew up in Meriden and then I moved to Berlin 
um, before my uh, last year of middle school and then high school. And so those, those are very different environments, um, you know, going from kind of being a, a white presenting person to all of a sudden being a person of color. And I don't know, a lot of my mixed people out there probably can feel the same where in different uh, environments, you kind of switch races or you switch like your role in, in these places sometimes. And so uh, that was uh, kind of a shock to me also. A, a lot of different things. And so uh, New England Baby is kind of about that, looking for a place where you finally can belong, kind of fit in. Um, but I did start writing music in Berlin, in Berlin High School. Shout out <laughs> to them. Hey. Yeah. And because you, you just mentioned sort of representation of yourself and depending mm-hmm. on on where you're at. So we you know, we introduced you know you're in Jakarta you moved there um, for music and we'll definitely uh, dig a little deeper into that uh, in a little bit but but especially with what you just shared you know what point did it become clear to you that Indonesia was where you needed to go to uh, to continue your music career? Yeah, um, a lot of people are surprised at that choice. Even Indonesians they have a little bit of like a self deprecating sense of themselves. And so they'll ask me like, why Indonesia? Why Jakarta? Like, why would you come here? And, you know, the city is, has its challenges, but it is so amazing. And there's so much energy here. All of the most talented people come to Jakarta, you know, from the region. This is a, the fourth most populous nation in the world. It's also like the most secret nation in the world. Americans don't know anything about Indonesia. And when I was there playing uh, playing some shows, I had a little tour throughout Connecticut. I got all this nonsense, crazy things happening. People trying to like connect with me over this foreign place, but like just kind of in a in an uh, in an irrelevant way. You know, they tell me about India. They introduced me as coming from India. Someone asked me if I was spending time in China. I'm like, you know, my family is Indonesian. Like, what is happening right now? Um, so it's kind of my job to kind of talk about Indonesia. And so why I went there, I had kind of played a lot of the gigs that I could play. I play folk music, you know, and in New England, folk music is very white. And so I saw my future opening up as having to play for all of these, you know, homogenous spaces to me, um, I experienced this a lot when I was playing uh, cover shows, wedding gigs, and also in my original music. I feel like I'd either be playing for like 90% white audiences or really mixed, diverse audiences. There wasn't really a lot of um, in between. Um, and so I saw my future opening up as having to to do all that and constantly receive, you know, these microaggressions and having to educate. Um, and I just felt so exhausted by that prospect. And so, you know, it being perhaps time for me to move to a city to make better connections, find better resources and structures. And um, New York, it's right. It's it's crazy there. It's very expensive. Um, Boston's not really an option. L.A. I don't know anybody in L.A. So I thought Jakarta, you know, I had been there a few times with my family. I even played a gig there after my first EP in 2014. And the response there was 
incredible. You know, everybody's really listening. They're so excited that you're here. Um, and they also are writing in English a lot. They're always on their phones. So they're connected with you on social media. You can continue to tell them stories and talk about your music. Um, and the, you know, the opportunities um, are just, it, it, they're kind of exploding for me right now, alhamdulillah. So um, yeah, Jakarta has been good. It's it's so interesting to hear you talk about your experience in terms of being sort of an American singer-songwriter in Indonesia and, and sort of the comments that you're making because when I first learned that you're in Jakarta, I actually had the warm and fuzzies because my best friend from childhood is from Jakarta and she talks about Jakarta all the time. So I actually have this very familiar feeling with it. So it's a it's an interesting contrast to hear you talk about your experience. And mm-hmm. um, so we want to get back to um, talking about your decision to move there in a, in a second here, but I also want to sort of jump to your newest single, A New England Baby. You produced this entirely in Indonesia, right? Like, what was that experience like? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, coming to a new city, like anybody who's moved somewhere, you've got to kind of restart your your network. And in music, it's so important, right? We support each other. You know, you have to know your community. And so I just kind of took the same concepts that I had in my in my uh, former and still ongoing communities um, in in America, and just hit the ground. You know, showed up to people's shows. I'm involved in the Jakarta blues community here, which to me blues was not like a thriving thing in Connecticut. But these cats can play, and they would have open jams. So I would go, you know, hop on the mic sing a few numbers, meet everybody. Um, I'm so sorry. I forgot your question, though. <laughs> no, I was just going to... We got to be in the moment, you know, speaking of blues and jazzies. Uh, yeah. We were talking about New England Baby and talk, how you yeah, produced yeah. that entirely in Indonesia. And what was that experience mm-hmm. like? Yeah, so uh, the first thing I had to do was find people who could help me produce this. There's a lot of pressure to kind of do it yourself. And I just... I could have the ability, but I'm just too lazy. Like, and you have to like totally meet yourself there. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought, okay, I need some help. I need to get this going. I finally met Leonardo Ringo, who is an indie rock producer, and he had been in a few different indie rock bands. Um, and so I found him. I liked his vibe, and you know, to be honest, I didn't even listen to his music. I just needed somebody to help create this vision and. Together with him and my other collaborator, Gabriel Mayo, who is an amazing singer songwriter. And, you know, all these guys are writing in English, you guys. So go look up their bands, Gabriel Mayo and Leonardo Ringo. And um, yeah, we, we kind of have been working since March. And uh, we are making an EP of four songs. It's going to be the first of three EPs, kind of detailing this, this journey. Um, a lot of my songs are very personal, so it's kind of about my personal journey of moving from Connecticut to Jakarta. So the first EP will come out in uh, later this year, and New England Baby is the first single from it. And in New England Baby, you wrote, New England Baby, You Mess Me Up. Now, why is New England so messy? <laughs> um, well, I like that line because you could read it two different ways. It could be New England, baby, you mess me up. Or it could be talking about myself. 
as a New England baby in talking to me, you mess me up. But either way, right, there's some messiness. <laughs> the idea is that we can get really comfortable where we are, no matter where you are. And sometimes it's you've, you've got everything figured. Maybe your ancestors have done most of the work and you're there and everything is pretty much taken care of and you've got your job, you've got your friends, you've got a significant whatever. Um, and, and you need to kind of put yourself completely out of that comfortable situation in order to experience growth and in order to experience that kind of little bit of suffering. You know, it's hard to welcome suffering. We already have so much of it in our in our normal lives. And so to seek out more, I think is kind of the most courageous part of, of this. And of anybody who's done something big or challenging like that, you, you sometimes have to choose it. And so that's kind of uh, where that song is coming from. And in another part of the chorus, you say, I want to feel assimilated. And based on what we were just talking about, I feel like this could go either way in either country. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Mm. Yeah, and that's a kind of a part of the the journey of a mixed person. Um, you know, I had known what it feels like as a part of the American mosaic. And, and in Indonesia, I really do assimilate. And now I'm dealing with, I've been here for uh, almost three years in December. And um, now I'm dealing with, oh, wow, I assimilate way too well. <laughs> and now I need to stand out a little bit more because I really pass. And that was kind of uh, not surprising to me, but it now it comes with challenges because I am American and my body, you can see that on stage. You can uh, hear it obviously in my, in my voice that I'm not from here. Even in that, even in the body, the way you hold yourself, the way you hold space. When I first got here, I, I was bumping into everything because I'm used to a, a world of larger people and we have a lot of space in America. And so I'm literally bumping into things because we're a lot more tightly packed in this city. Um, so, you know, assimilation, it's not just from the outside, it's from the inside. Um, how do you relate to the people around you? And uh, I'm right now, perhaps the next series of projects might talk about the struggles of now being here and trying to um, assimilate, but also um, recognize that I am an individual and I'm American and there's really, there's nothing I can take, you know, I can't take myself from that. Right, and especially with talking about you know, the physicality of it, both your literal body and where you moved to. You also wrote in your other song, Kalarga, that diaspora has has us crafting a different definition of home. So when you when you wrote that and now you're you, you know, you lived in two different places, did that change or you know, what were what were your thoughts when you wrote that line? Um well when I am there, I'm thinking, oh I can't there, they're meaning the United States. Um, I'm looking forward to going home, which is here. Um, and then when I'm here, you know, when I'm going home, I'm going back to Connecticut. But I think even before I crafted a relationship with Indonesia, um, you have a lot of immigrant families, you know, saying, oh, I'm going home this summer or something. And even the, sec the first, second generation kids who didn't grow up there at all, and they'll still say, I'm going home. And you feel like it has that capital H 
And so for for people of the diaspora, home is is wherever your people are. You know, it's kind of a cliche, but it's true. Um, and even people who, you know, they've got family in all different parts of the world, in parts of the country, um, those that's where your home is with those people that you love. Well, and I love that you talk about both places in that way, because let's talk about that being an important concept for a show that's called Wherever We Live. And New England, baby, you end you end the show on, or the show, you end the song on the lyric, It's Not Enough, which sounds very powerful. Can you talk about what that means, Ashley? Yeah. You know, and anybody who's an artist and, and making work, you see the same ideas coming up because you're speaking from, you know, yourself or whatever comes through you. Um, so that line happens uh, in another song as well called Waiting, which is on my last record, WZRD. Um, and I think it might be the, the, it's the last song in the record. Um, and um, it, I, I asked the question, will it ever be enough? And so here now in New England, baby, it's not enough. Maybe the next song we'll find out what is enough. <laughs> I do not know. <laughs> TBD. But uh, <laughs> I, you know, it's just searching. It's a song about about searching. And so I, the first thing is to acknowledge that something is enough to grow you into the next person that you want to be, um, into the next stage of your career or your work that you want to go to. Um, and so that's the first step is to recognize that you're not being uh, served or fed what you need and, and it's not enough. And then the next step is to, to do something about it. And as you explore that, you also, uh, you recently posted on Instagram about the complicated feelings you had on coming back home to Connecticut from being abroad in Indonesia. Uh, let's take a quick listen on that. I'm home and I've just been taking everything in. I haven't experienced an August here in, I don't know, three years. And the funniest things will break you. My dad's little coffee pot. I don't know what it is, that. I started crying. <laughs> Thinking about my dad making coffee in the morning. And gosh, I just, I miss home so much. So this was right when you arrived home. And there's jet lag that you noted you were feeling in the moment. But... Of course, there are some really deep feelings and really complex feelings there. And I wonder if this resonates with a lot of people who have moved away from home and are currently away from home. You know, obviously you were going through a lot when you said when you were when you share that those uh, feelings, you know, how does your music explore different definitions of home? Wow. Um <clears throat> I have another song called um, Bring Them Home, also on WZRD. Um, home is such a complicated thing when you are from an immigrant family, you know, and some people I've talked to from different countries, actually their diaspora is not super welcome, you know, back home. So if they leave, they're kind of not really socially welcome back home. Like they'll get heckled a lot by their family or just, you know, kind of a, a jealousy or hatred um, that you've left and that you've gone somewhere else, possibly quote better also in, in their eyes. So I'm, I'm fortunate that Indonesia is not like that. 
And for the most part, they really welcome me in um, and treat me to an elevated status because of some, you know, post-colonialism, I, I think. Um, so for me to to make a home here in my family's apartment in Jakarta, like I'm very, very fortunate and privileged to be able to do that. Um, how I talk about home, I don't know, it's just, it's on a few different songs, um, that constant search for a place. And now I feel like I've found a bit of home. Um, I have some friends here that are super tight and so talented and, and warm, loving people. I've got some, you know, my family and, and my friends back home as well and in America, <laughs> so many homes. Um, so I feel like in that you've, you've got to make your home from the ground up. And I feel like now I'm in a point where, where I have that in a few different places. Well, I think that's really beautiful. It's so nice to to have so many different homes in in different ways, and and because you mm-hmm. just got back to Jakarta, we'd love to ask, we'd love to to hear about you know what were your feelings as you came home and performed this song in Connecticut. That's that's a good question because yeah, I had been playing that in Jakarta, and I have a different um, almost goal with them because I don't know if all of them can really understand my lyrics. You know, a lot of people do uh, speak English or understand English, um, but not everybody, you know? And I've, it's such a challenge for me because I wanna meet my audience where they are and go somewhere together. But if they don't understand, then I have to rely more on maybe some theatrics, um, really using my voice in interesting ways. Um, moving around a bit so that even if they don't understand the words, they can appreciate a performance. In New England, in Connecticut, um, I was able to just communicate the song, the lyrics. And so I think I was a little bit more aware of presenting the, you know, the, the words in a more clear way. So in terms of the technicalities of my performance, yeah, I did adjust some things. And just to know, one of my friends afterwards said that song had a perfect amount of like, um, not aggressiveness, my goodness, but like a little bit of the bitterness comes through and is like just enough, he said, which, okay, sure. <laughs> if it's there, is that too much even to have so much bitterness in your song? But Mm, that's art. It's not for us to really judge. We just serve it and and make it come out through us. Um, so yeah, I think it was different how I performed it in Indonesia and, and in Connecticut, being aware that this is a message that could be actually conveyed to the actual people who might have personal relationships with wanting to move out of New England or Connecticut. We hear that a lot within our population because we're such a small state and people want to know what's uh, what's out there. But it's such a beautiful state and I really miss the things that I didn't used to miss. And I appreciate it on a whole nother level. Um, all of Connecticut, to be honest. 
Well, and I think that that's a beautiful experience because I think for a lot of people who have left, find appreciation for one of their homes. I certainly appreciate my home much better in different ways as I have moved away from it as well. So we'll continue this conversation with singer-songwriter Ashley Hamill after a quick break. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Back with us now is Ashley Hamill. She's a Connecticut native and singer-songwriter based in Jakarta, Indonesia. We've been talking about how she got started with her music career and the stories behind her songs. So for our listeners, if you want to weigh in on the music scene where we live and beyond, please give us a call at 888-720-9677 or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So Ashley, you know, we in the last segment, we were just talking about how complicated it can be feeling when you're back at home. You were back in Connecticut after being away for so long, and now you're back in Jakarta yesterday. So how are you feeling today? Well, I slept through the whole day, so I'd never, I did not experience daylight. <laughs> As you should, actually. <laughs> uh, when the sun goes down at around 6 p.m. every day, so it's actually earlier than in the summer, in Connecticut. Um, I feel excited. I already slept through one of my meetings. Like I, 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 I'm going to, I'm going to a festival this weekend and I'm going to see all these people and, um, watch some music. I think it's all local music at this festival. Um, and they do a lot of festivals in the city. Uh, and a lot of them have international acts. It's really cool. You get, you get to see these, uh, popular international acts, but this one is local. Um, I'm busy. I'm doing Mamma Mia with a local theater company here. Like I'm doing Western Broadway theater in Jakarta. So I'm busy and I'm excited to start this new season. Um, just get back into it, back back to work with all of my suitcase full of American snacks. Okay, I got some pumpkin spice coffee. Oh, like yes. I'm ready. <laughs> As you should. <laughs> It's almost yes. a, a rule um, that you have to bring American snacks back. Um, oh. so, 
I mean, my next question is going to ask what your day-to-day life is in is like in Jakarta. But it sounds like you're having just the best time of your life. You know, how does the city impact or inspire your songwriting? And, and I know you talked a little bit about what the music scene is like, but can you just talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, um, definitely different things. You know, are have different emotions in this city and different environment, different people. So, so far, the songs that have come out, um, at least like in my third year now, I feel a lot more settled and I can speak the language better. Uh, I've got some friends in the beginning, as you can imagine. And I arrived during the pandemic. It was really isolating. So a lot of the songs came out were kind of like depressing, as you do, um, longing for some kind of connection. One of the songs that I play out a lot, which I think will be on the second EP, which we should start next year sometime, um, is called Happening. And I, I introduce it usually as a song about being really bored, but at least you're in love. And one of the lines is like, when I'm feeling lazy, I order a staycation. Scenery changing, fight the fear that time is passing. Um, so a lot of the time that I was here, I had to do other things to survive, as you do as an artist. Um, and so feeling like I'm, I came here to Indonesia to do this thing, and I'm stuck doing the other stuff, you know. So there is that that feeling because it's a city. You've got to work super hard. Everybody here is hustling, um, and so that can kind of drain you. So I've been writing songs a little bit about that, about that city hustle and how it. How it affects you. It's a, yeah, it's a, it is a thing. It is definitely a thing. I'm from Connecticut. Like we don't, we don't, we don't go on that fast of a pace, you know? (laughs) Right. Well, and it's, that is another interesting point you're making too, because it feels like it's so universal, you know, regardless of what city you're in, the hustling is real. And uh, you touched a little bit uh, on this earlier, but how does it, how does that scene and the music scene, you know, compare uh, to Connecticut slash New England? Oh, I mean, like I said before, it's about community, right? It's about your connections and who you know, but, you know, in a positive way as well. Um, here they are, if I use the stereotypes of, you know, the West being more individualistic and the East being more collectivist, that has some value. Um because here, I mean, there's so many people on, on the Java small continent. I think there's more people on this island than there are in like all of Russia. Um, and I don't know how large Java is, but it takes like 15 to 20 hours to cross it. So it's not small. Um, but because there's so many people tightly packed, they work really well together. And when People put on events like I used to do. I put on some events in my tour. I put together shows and I did that all by myself. Um, and then the people who, you know, I got into the show, like we all helped each other out at the at that moment. But here, I mean, they do things just all together. They've got somebody, you know, setting up the lights. They've got, you know, a few different people on sound more than one. (laughs) Um, They've got a few people there doing videography, photography, the social media, um, a host, maybe two hosts, like an MC. There there are so many people involved. And that's just in event making. In all other aspects, people work really well together in groups. Um, And so that's been kind of a shift. 
to allow people to help me and to kind of be in a group. I'm still learning how to do that because <laughs> I'm like, I'll just do it myself. I'm from America. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's one of the differences. Right. And they're like, you can ask for some help. <laughs> um, and well, you, cause you, you, you talk about, you know, there's so many people involved and there's so many people who go to these festivals and, and you talking about how like they're always putting on events, they're always putting on uh, festivals and concerts. So, you know, in our next segment later, we'll be joined by U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal, who has concerns about what he sees as a ticket selling monopoly here in the United States. You know, what's your perspective on this aspect of the industry? Is that something that you're seeing in Indonesia? Mm. I'm not I'm not there in Indonesia to know about like I'm still on the indie level um, and still really establishing. Um, but I know that uh, it, probably anywhere it's just it's hard to make music. It's hard to make money as a musician, um, something that my mom is always telling me about la la la. Um, and it's, it's true, you know, and this is your profession. I've even heard of venues taking cuts from merch selling and as uh, you know a touring band or a touring artist that's where you're going to make the most of your money is through your merch um, oftentimes because ticket sales are so convoluted and you'll hear more about that in the next segment um, oftentimes because ticket sales don't make you as much as they should everybody's taking cuts from it your merch is where you make money and a lot of venues are starting to take that as well um, I'm not sure about the levels of attendance in terms of before and after the pandemic. That's probably a factor as well. Um, but yeah, it's getting a lot harder to tour and obviously a lot harder to make money from your recorded music, because as we know, all the streaming platforms, they give you percentages of pennies on the dollar. Um, I think I've made $100 from my streaming in the past nine years. Now, I really don't release recorded music as much as I should, which is why I'm here recording music finally. Um, but 10 years, $100 is really not that that much. Um, and yeah, it's really a, a game of hoping to get something, some big, big hit, a viral hit. And there you might see some money. Um, but yeah, if all the revenue streams Tickets should be where we make money um, in live events. And that's also been a struggle as well. Right. And I think the number you just mentioned, that's quite shocking. But I'm, I'm supposing that's also not very surprising. And and because you're on the indie level from that perspective, a little uh, quickly, how does that differ in Indonesia? Is that also getting increasingly difficult? Is that a challenge that you're still seeing? Um, you know, I can't speak to the development of it, but I can speak to it where it is now. Um, and what I enjoy and what another reason why I came here is because the indie scene and the major scene, they're very fluid. The ecosystem here is a lot more healthy, um, even with a ton, a ton of listeners. Um, you see a lot of the major labels interacting and, you know, a lot of the players, everybody knows each other for it being such a big country. You know, the musicians know each other. Um, and I was meeting with some record labels before before I went back home to America. And, you know, the head of A&R at um, Undisclosed Record Label um, was, you know, part of an indie band 10 years ago. 
So yeah, it's been pretty healthy for the past 10 years. I heard that before that it wasn't as healthy. And so that just is a, um, you know, it just shows the strength of mind of the former generation, the earlier millennials, the Gen X who were starting these indie bands. And maybe it was in the MySpace era, they were able to reach ears and make that direct connection. And I think it's been, um, it's been more healthy ever since then. Ashley Hamill, singer-songwriter based in Jakarta, Indonesia, thank you so much for sharing your stories with us today, and best of luck to all of your musical and theatrical endeavors. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful. This is super fun. Thank you so much for your time. And coming up next, Senator Richard Blumenthal has the latest on a bill he co-sponsored that he hopes will break up what he says is a ticket-selling monopoly. So what has your experience been like buying concert tickets online? Do we have any Swifties or Beyonce fans listening? Join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Will I ever put together the separate parts of this little heart? Come on This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. At a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing earlier this year, U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal criticized Ticketmaster's alleged monopoly over the live music industry after their merger with Live Nation. The hearing took place shortly after Ticketmaster's website crashed due to the number of people trying to get tickets to Taylor Swift's upcoming tour. Senator Blumenthal joins us now to talk about a federal bill he recently sponsored that he hopes will rein in the role of online third-party ticket sellers. Senator Blumenthal, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Catherine. Good to be with you. And for our listeners, have you had trouble buying tickets recently? You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Senator, can you take us back to that judiciary hearing with Live Nation President and CFO Joe Berktold, who was addressing the messy rollout of Taylor Swift ticket sales? Why was this a tipping point for you? I think it was a catastrophic example for consumers across the country of what it means for Ticketmaster and Live Nation as an entity to have such monopolistic dominance. They control the ticket industry for concerts and other events in the United States. 85 to 90 percent of the venues are under their control. They have exclusive contracts with them or they own them. And they also control the promotion, advertising. And, of course, they can say to the venues, either you sell tickets through us or you don't get the artists that you want. And they have agreements with the promoters and the agents that give them this dominance. And so they had that kind of dominance going into the Taylor Swift concert. Their systems collapsed. They were overloaded. Their computer systems are, in effect, 
obsolete in many ways because they have no real competition. They don't have to update them or invest in them. And I said to Joe Berthold, you know, you're blaming everyone else. They blamed Taylor Swift because she hadn't done concerts recently. You should look in the mirror and say, uh, I'm the problem. It's me. Now, that lyric from a Taylor Swift song uh, kind of resonated with people because they recognize that in fact, the problem is Ticketmaster. They are putting profits above their consumers. They make tons of money from exorbitant costs of tickets, hidden fees, exorbitant uh, and excessive charges, and it's all the result of this monopolistic control that they have. And for our listeners, um, a reminder that if you have had ticket trouble, you can join the conversation at 888-720-9677 or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, we have Amy on the line who has had trouble getting Taylor Swift tickets. Amy, you're on the air. Yeah, hi. Uh, my daughter is just turned 13 yesterday, and I'm trying to get Taylor Swift tickets for her. Um, for the family, really, because it's just everything that all the kids are talking about right now. And um, me and another local mom tried to get them when there were some additional dates added. And my, my friend's mom got the code, and I didn't. And so now she's got tickets, and she can actually, if she wants to, sell them for thousands of dollars more because um, she has other options for tickets in other countries. So it's just it's just really frustrating and uh, for for, you know, all of us. Well, thank you so much, Amy, for sharing your story, which I'm sure is also the story of many other people who are trying to get tickets. Uh, Senator Blumenthal, how is this reflective of the issues that you're seeing? It is a perfectly reflective story. Thank you so much, Amy, for sharing it. Catherine, what consumers are encountering are, in fact, those secondary market overcharges as Amy mentioned, her daughter can sell those tickets for thousands of dollars. Uh, that kind of ticket scalping, I know Amy's daughter's not going to do it, but what happens is that the ticket scalpers, the professionals, will use bots to buy huge numbers of tickets and then resell them. And Ticketmaster exercises very little, if any, of the kind of disciplinary steps that it could to stop this kind of abuse. But the main point is, that it reflects the, the problem of consumers having nowhere else to go. They, there's no competition. Ticketmaster is the only outlet. And so they are, in effect, leveraging their power to lock up venues into exclusive contracts and to charge these exorbitant and excessive prices. And that's why we have a number of measures. The Unlock Ticketing Markets Act would help consumers and independent venue operators by making sure that primary ticketing companies face pressures to innovate and improve and compete. We have the Junk Fees Prevention Act, which would require upfront disclosure of all the charges, all the fees, so that none would be hidden. And then what I would like to see is the Department of Justice seek to unwind the merger between Ticketmaster and Live Nation, if the evidence justifies it. In other words, break up this monopoly. And so there are remedies that we can pursue to stop the kind of abuses that uh, are reflected in stories like Amy's. 
And you mentioned the Unlocked Ticketing Markets Act, which is a bill that you proposed with uh, Senator Amy Klobuchar back in April. Can you talk a bit more about what it would call for? And also, you talked about the con- your concerns about the length of contracts that venues enter into with Ticketmaster. So what would this bill do on that front? What the bill would do, essentially, is to stop exclusive contracts that right now last for 10 years, uh, sometimes more, and venues are locked into dealing only with Ticketmaster because of these exclusive contracts. So it would, in effect, free the venues and enable more competition. Uh, I just want to make the point that this focus of mine is not new. Going back to April of 2020, I called on the Department of Justice, the antitrust division there, to take action to ensure that these small and independent venues can compete on a level playing field in the live entertainment marketplace. In fact, a year earlier, we asked the Department of Justice to begin an investigation of the ticketing marketplace. So these concerns about dominance through control over the venues and exclusive contracts really began years ago, and action by the Department of Justice, in my view, is long overdue, uh, and sending a message that they are, uh, in effect, going to scrutinize this industry to make sure there's more competition itself would be welcome. So we have more calls coming in from frustrated listeners. We have Ellie from Mansfield who is on the line. Ellie, you're on the air. Hi there. Nice to be here today. <laughs> Absolutely. Go for it. Um, yeah, so I'm 25 and my partner is 23. So we're like at the perfect age to want to be going to cool concerts, especially in like the Beyonce, Taylor Swift era that we're in right now. Um, and it's really frustrating because when I tell this to people around me, um, especially older people my parents' age, will tell me all about the really fun, historical even concerts that they got to see. And we'll say things like, oh, you know, we've got them for $10 and we got to go see, you know, a really cool, historically important band. Um, And I think that, you know, Taylor Swift and Beyonce's concert definitely sort of fit the same mold. But unless you're working multiple jobs at my age or you have, you know, family members or friends who are willing to help with the cost. Like, I've only really been to two concerts in the last year, and both of them were under $50 for the tickets. So it it wasn't, I wasn't going. I think we might have lost Ellie there, but thank you so much, Ellie, for sharing your quick story. Uh, Senator Blumenthal, your response to Ellie here, and also what's the status of the bill? Ellie, uh, we lost you on the line, but your message is loud and clear about excessive prices for ticketing. And the irony here is that the artists themselves see this system as broken. You know, uh, the Ticketmaster folks blame Taylor Swift, but Taylor Swift is very, very clear-eyed about what's happening here. And she's a hero for standing up for her fans and saying we need to fix this broken system and make sure that these tickets are affordable. 
and that the scalpers and the bots do not artificially raise their price. As you know, right now, ticket scalpers can use software to purchase very high volumes of tickets, and that's the reason that I advocated successfully for a measure called the BOTS Act, Better Online Ticket Sales, uh, which provided some remedies, but we need to take it the next step. And so we've introduced another measure, uh, along with the ones that I mentioned earlier, called the BOSS Act, named after, well, you know who. And uh, we are providing, uh, hopefully, through this measure, other kinds of remedies against these excessive prices by providing consumers with more transparency and, uh, again, uh, the unaffordability, the excessive prices, the hidden fees, this system is broken. And that's why legislation is absolutely necessary, along with potential action by the Department of Justice. I'm going to keep fighting for it. We had a hearing that you mentioned. I've got allies in the United States Senate, Senator Klobuchar, Senator Booker of New Jersey, and others. And I'm hoping that we will have bipartisan support for this effort because and it's not like it's limited to one state, red or blue. Right. And we've got about a, a minute left here, Senator. I want to ask, what's the status of the Unlock Ticketing Markets Act and what's next? It's been referred to committee, the Commerce Committee, and I'm going to work for a vote there and on the floor of the Senate. But most important to getting it done is the advocacy you just heard from everyday consumers ticket buyers who are frustrated and angry, as I am, and I'm hoping they'll contact my colleagues uh, or contact friends in other states, particularly in red states, where Republicans can be told their constituents' frustrations and anger. Senator Richard Blumenthal, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. 